I'm London Lopate. In his latest book, University of Baltimore law professor Daniel L. Hatcher describes the long-term monetization of our justice system, how institutions like child services, probation, local and state courts, and policing find ways to profit from increasingly punitive fee-driven law enforcement. Injustice Incorporated, How America's Justice System Commodifies Children and the Poor is published by the University of California Press and brings Professor Hatcher to our show now. Welcome. But me on the show. You write, I'm quoting, racial and economic inequalities are inextricably intertwined in the profiteering used by each of our foundational institutions of justice. If justice fails, all else fails with it. Don't uh, children and adults who are often poor and black wind up being harmed by the institutions that are intended to serve and help them? Yes, unfortunately, and it's a, a long history, as, as you indicated. And what I'm finding in, in my research that I uncover in the book is, is not only do we have this disproportionate harm um, that's frequently occurring by each of our um pieces of our institutions of, of justice, right? And and that it's happening historically, but that that harm is being monetized. So I found all these revenue mechanisms, intra-agency contracts, you know, where uh, various branches are contracting to literally generate revenue, right, through proceedings um, that are causing harm, and I argue that are violating both constitutional and ethical obligations. So you reveal how corporatized institutions enter into contracts to make money from removing children from their homes, extorting files and fees, collaborating with debt collectors, seizing property, incentivizing arrests and evictions, enforcing unpaid child labor, maximizing occupancy and detention and treatment centers and more. <laughs> is, that, is that the United States of America? Unfortunately, that, that is where our current foundational systems, I believe, are failing in their intended missions. Right. And, you know, look, like I, I, I believe in, in the missions of our government institutions. I believe in the in the ideal of equal and impartial justice. I don't think we're there, nor have we been there. Right. But we have to keep striving for that ideal. And that's why I'm so concerned when I when I uncover these examples where the institutions that are intended to serve us, that are intended to maximize our welfare and our justice, are instead using us to create revenue for themselves, right? You know, our our institutions of justice are running like a factory business. And you say that the more beds filled in detention facilities, the more children taken from their parents, the more evictions carried out, the more money for juvenile, family, and criminal courts and their corporate partners. That's right. Unfortunately, what what, what I've uncovered is, is in time and time again, the more harm often and again, to low-income families, often, almost always, with a disproportionate impact based upon race, the more harm, the more revenue that the institutions are potentially able to, to generate. That these institutions of justice, they've 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 lost their way, right? You know, we even saw this during during COVID. You know, where you had um, 
several restrictions on on practices that were intended to for the public welfare. So if you just think about the um, the restrictions on evictions, right, um, that was needed um, during this time, several sheriff's offices and other uh, branches of our justice systems lost significant revenue during this time period when they weren't able to generate revenue by pursuing the poor, evicting them, generate revenue from fines and fees, right? Seizing property, it goes on and on. So if these institutions that, you know, their own mission statement is supposed to be to serve and protect, right? If they're actually losing revenue when they're helping us, right? There's something inverted about that process. How many institutions are involved? All of them, and it's it's. And you say in your in your subtitle, uh, the the justice system commodifies children and the poor. So that 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 imply that that's for all of the different institutions involved. All of our foundational justice institutions, right? Our, our courts, juvenile and family courts, criminal courts, um, our prosecuting agencies, you know, county, state prosecutors' offices, sometimes attorneys general, right? Mm-hmm. Our um, probation departments, our various policing departments and detention facilities, residential treatment centers, you know, juvenile jails and the like are all adhering following this, this shift from serving us, right, from serving the vulnerable to using the vulnerable as a source of revenue. And, and the harm is, is just immense. And it doesn't, doesn't just harm the individuals who are directly impacted. It harms all of us. And it undercuts the entire foundations of our justice system. Why does it harm all of us? Well, that's a good question. Like, you know, it, it impacts us both morally, I hope, but also financially. You know, like if, uh, if low-income individuals are struggling, if we are paying for a justice system that is causing harm, we all pay for that, right? You know, when it causes problems in the infrastructure of our society, be it in small towns or largest cities. So we're right? paying for it in the long run. There's a short run profit for some people, but a long run cost for all of us. That's right. And and, and I, I would argue that the, the profit for the institutions is ultimately harmful for them as well. They've, they've just too often taken on a um, sort of a business consultant mindset. How do you maximize efficiency and revenue rather than maximizing their mission, right? Their mission, again, of, of serving our welfare and, and, and justice. There's, you know, one of the striking examples um, that I write about in the book, you know, just one of the examples out of Ohio. Hmm. Um, and there the juvenile courts have engaged in a contractual practice like multiple other states. And the juvenile courts are literally contracting to generate revenue when they remove children from their homes, um, from delinquency proceedings. Um, and what they're doing is they actually contract to become part of the executive branch. They're contracted to become the foster care agency. And if you know, if you just pause and, and think about that for a second, you know, you know, we fought a revolutionary war some time ago in this country to escape tyranny, right? To escape that centralized power in one entity, which was the crown um, and the foundations of our government, you know, the founders created a structure supposed to be a separation of powers between the branches and crucial within that separation is supposed to be the independence of our judiciary. But here you have the juvenile courts actually contracting to become part of the executive branch and to take on that executive branch foster care agency function. And then what they do, you know, they, if they, if the, if they put on their court hat and adjudicate children delinquent, 
They can then put on their contractual foster care agency hat and remove the children, place the children in, in facilities, sometimes even in a residential treatment center operated by the court, right? And, and then the court puts its court hat back on again. It rules on itself and these actions. And if it rules on itself favorably, it can generate more foster care revenue, pulling in federal foster care revenue, right, that's intended to help but that has instead, instead inserted into a revenue source. So it's monetizing harm to children? Absolutely, and, and their families. Um, so that same child, you know, you could have a child um, removed from the home and monetized in that process through that juvenile court contract, right? That same juvenile court might then have a simultaneous contract, right, to generate revenue when pursuing something called child support against the poor parent, let's say it's against the poor mother, right, who, who, who's had just you know, gone through the trauma having their child removed, right? So now the same court may generate revenue by pursuing what's called child support against that mother, but not actually to help the child is to repay the cost of foster care that the court just ordered, right? You know, so it's making money removing the child and then it's making money pursuing the parent because of that removal. Right. And then the prosecutors in many states will get in on it through similar contracts. Same with probation. Right. So it's it's a monetization monetization of harm that becomes inescapable for for the vulnerable populations impacted. You say many states. You mentioned Ohio. There are also you write about cases in Michigan, Georgia and elsewhere. Does it matter what whether the state is is red or blue or uh, what kind of history it's had? That's a good question. You know, like I will say, like many of the probably the more stark examples that I've uncovered, you know, can tend to appear in um, states with current conservative leadership. And right. And certainly some irony, if you see, you know, um, current leadership that might be uh, have a lot of disdain for federal aid for for low income populations, while that administration itself is actually actively pursuing that federal aid for itself. Right. Rather, Rather than to help. But I've uncovered these practices in red states and blue states across the country and in large cities, the small towns, right? This is happening in New York in a wide variety of ways across the state and also in, in New York City. It's happening in Maryland, you know, where, where I teach, both in Baltimore and across the state. So unfortunately, or <laughs> you know, use your own adjective, you know how this happens, is it's widespread. Right. You know, and it's and it's again, this increasing shift where agencies that exist to serve also seek to exist. Right. And they've gotten on the wrong side of that tension. And especially now our, our justice systems, which are supposed to be monitors of rights. Right. And to protect liberties. Right. Are instead using us to generate revenue. And, it, and it's just devastatingly harmful. Well, you mentioned the juvenile courts. What about family courts? Right. You know, so the family courts as well, including, as I wrote about in Ohio, including Maryland, most family courts or their um, various iterations across the country are engaging in, in somewhat of a contractual process to monetize child support, turning child support more into a factory where it can cause actual harm to the low income families when it's supposed to be only about help, right? Child support is only supposed to be about assistance. First of all, most people don't realize that much of our, our child support system for low income families, it's called the 4D, Title 4D child support system, which is uh, created under federal 
law. And again, there's federal funds going to the states and counties. Um, often now you have our um, branches of justice, again, prosecutors, probation, or courts directly are going after that federal money, right, in a way that incentivizes potential harm. Um, in many of these cases, the sport isn't even owed to the children. Again, it's owed to the government to repay um, welfare when a low-income parent is struggling and needs temporary assistance or in a case where a child is removed from their home involuntarily, sometimes by the court that's also been generating revenue from the child support. Um, and it's just devastating. And and the contracts, I argue, are unconstitutional. And, and Pennsylvania, I give an example statewide, the, the, the family courts have entered contracts somewhat like, you know, the juvenile courts in Ohio, where the family courts have become the local child support agencies. Um, then again, the, the courts review their own actions. When they review themselves positively, they can generate more Title 40 federal revenue while inflicting harm on, on low-income families. They are incentivized in those contracts at twice the rate to pursue government-owed collections rather than money actually owed to the children, and they're also incentivized to even get a contingency fee in these in these contracts by pursuing payments from low-income families to repay the cost of Medicaid. It goes on and on. Like a contingency fee is the opposite of impartiality, right? You know, like again, you know, these justice officials, impartiality is such a sacrosanct principle of constitutional due process. Well, I have um, to imagine that some people have objected o along the way. No. Well, how do they when they don't have lawyers, uh, you know, when, when they don't know? But the vast majority of people pulled in, into these systems, especially in the in the child support systems, don't have lawyers, either, either the custodial parents or the non-custodial parents, right? Those with money, those who are operating outside and, and the child support system that's not the 4D system, they often do have lawyers, right? We're not talking about courts for the wealthy. You know, these are these are not even often courts, you know, that, that are used for the poor. Um, so frequently these 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 practices are happening in the dark and in the juvenile court practices, much of that is is literally confidential, right? Confidential systems. So how to uncover these practices is, is really, really difficult. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at large is Daniel L. Hatcher. His latest book, Injustice Incorporated, How America's Justice System Commodifies Children and the Poor, is published by University of California Press. And this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Don't you call it a factory-like system? Right. It, it very much is right and and it's and it's sort of like in a factory assembly line but but more in the reverse more more of a disassembly line you have already struggling individuals um children and adults who are targeted and deconstructed for every possible penny again using them rather than serving them you describe how they create fee-gathering structures directed toward the poor, many of whom can never climb out of the uh, this cycle of debt. Uh, can you give some examples? Sure. So the, the examples that we um, discussed a bit, like you know, like the foster care contracts in Ohio, the child support contracts in Pennsylvania, and in multiple uh, states across the country. Right, are in addition to other revenue mechanisms that are ongoing, um, including the vast pursuit of fines and fees 
across the country. And this is an um, you know, monetized collaboration with with often the courts, prosecutors, probation, often sharing the takings when they pursue the poor. You say so that the, the more beds filled in detention facilities, the more children taken from their parents, the more evictions carried out, the more money for juvenile family and criminal courts and their corporate partners. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's again, the, the more they pursue. Right. That's the more revenue they can they can take in. And then this. Justice fines and fees pursuit, you know, the courts will order sometimes maybe a small fine and a misdemeanor case. Sometimes it's a traffic case that will balloon to thousands of dollars quickly if it's against the low income individuals as they, the court system and the probation department adds on additional interest and fees and fines on top of fines and fees. In many jurisdictions, the probation departments are enlisted sort of as a factory foot soldier, right, and, and the pursuit of this money from the poor that the court has ordered. And if they collect anything, they're going to share the revenue. Right. And then the probation departments in many states actually require the full payment of this unaffordable debt from the poor individual as a condition of probation. So what that means is, as the poor individual is struggling, right, facing not just this, but multiple other revenue mechanisms. And as the debt is building there, it's impossible for them to get free of that carceral probationary system that's monetizing them, right? Because the, the debts keep adding up. And if they can't pay it all in full, they can be stuck for literally forever. How do they justify uh, doing this to poor people? Does this system explain poverty as a series of costly personal failings so it's okay to punish these people? Well, I, and I've, I've testified in, uh, before uh, legislatures in multiple jurisdictions on a variety of issues impacting uh, low-income populations and children regarding uh, s similar issues. And you hear a variety of, of, of rationales, right? We need money. You know, you know, we need revenue to operate. And sure, you know, if you consider just a foster care agency, you need revenue to provide services and you need only though that revenue, which is necessary to provide the level of services that are necessary. Um, but in, in my last book, you know, and then also in this book, I hit on this practice where, our foster care agencies are actually pursuing foster youth, youth pulled away from their families who are either disabled or have dead parents, right? And then pursuing them and taking their survivor or disability benefits. They'll even take veterans assistance benefits from a child who had a parent die in the military. Um, these are our foster care agencies that exist. The sole reason they exist, right, is to protect and serve vulnerable youth. Right. And, the six, and but in this situation, they're literally going after them and taking their resources. So do they need revenue? Yes. At a certain level, should they be taking, you know, assets and property and money from the very people they exist to serve? No, it's, it's nonsensical at best. And I argue it's it's illegal um, that that case, that that particular example um, we've seen some hopeful improvement in, in some states uh, across the country, including in New York City, not New York State yet, but, but some improvement. But you describe how uh, corporatized institutions enter contracts to make money removing children from their homes and extorting fines and fees and collaborating with debt collectors and seizing property and incentivizing arrests and evictions and, the, to me, really shocking, enforcing unpaid child labor. Uh, 
this is all, and, and to maximize occupancy in detention and treatment centers, uh, all ways of, of uh, making money? Right, it, to, to generate revenue. Again, like it's, it's that um, shift from service to revenue and efficiency. And you, you read it even in annual reports of our courts, of our prosecutor's offices, of probation departments, where and budget documents where they read more like you know presentations to private investors right than um, a report about justice um, which equal and impartial justice which is what it's supposed to be about Um, but it's just mechanism after mechanism after mechanism in which they're pulled in you know you, you mentioned even you know you know the detention facilities um there are our residential treatment centers right many of these facilities now that are that they have maybe better sounding names you know you could hear a name like a residential treatment center sometimes a camp an academy and the like but they're still detaining children right and they're when they're profitized like when they're generating profit from jailing children in a business model right that that seeks to maximize occupancy literally in their contracts you know they have these Mm -hmm. types of this type of language use their occupancy rate, right? They seek to maximize the number of bodies in the beds while simultaneously minimizing cost of care. And to do that, you know, to minimize cost of care, they're often use seclusion and restraints, including to juveniles, um, including physical restraints or isolation has been used uh, against juveniles across the country in many of these facilities, which can greatly add to the trauma and harm experienced by these already vulnerable youth, right? And often the overuse of psychotropic medications as yet another way to control youth cheaply, right? While you're generating revenue by jailing them. I mentioned uh, they enforce unpaid child labor. Uh, I'm I'm not sure how that works, but I I am aware of the fact that you child labor can get you thrown into jail right well that's supposed to be in our country although we're seeing some concerns with that with some companies in the news mm-hmm. recently um but yes you know like in and and several examples um there can be uh orders and 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 requirements for juvenile labor sometimes as young as 12 you know potentially younger and and some jurisdictions forced to work for free and various types of work programs, you know, community service programs that it might be called. Um, and these are often run either by the courts directly or by probation officials, often sheriffs um, offices that are doing it. And they're generating revenue from this process, not just through having a free labor force, but literally often charging hmm. you know, the low income individuals who are forced to work for free, literally charging them to work for free, right? Charging them additional fees. And that can be added to the probation fees and, and the like. So it's just, again, uh, inescapable for the individuals impacted. You write, quote, this all seems confusing because it is. But what is clear is that the revenue strategy violates the separation of powers and judicial independence. Right. And I do think it's it's confusing. And, and um, the more you dig uh, into these contracts and budget documents, minutes from commissioner meetings and the like, the, the, the more you dig, the more you find. And, and you start to see how it's all interconnected with these contractual arrangements. Right. And again, with this 
increasing focus on revenue and efficiency, revenue and efficiency, right? Using children as numbers, as data points and equations. And, you know, if we just think about that, you know, like even just reading the data about the disproportionate harm, you know, we see report after report across the country of, of the harm um, and multiple examples, those stories that are able to see the light of day, you know, from some some residential treatment centers, you know, the recent reports of actual, you know, like the harmful current child labor, you know, used by um, some large companies in, in the country today, you know, a, as we speak. But every data point, every number is a child, right? And and it, it's we can almost become numb to that. But we have to remember every number is a child, and and we need to strive to do better. And many these children are often being removed from their homes. Uh, with is that because their uh, their families are abusive, or uh, or or are they they being punished for the the sins of their parents? That's a good question. You know, children are pulled into the system, so to speak, in a, in a, a variety of ways. Um, it can come from the juvenile delinquency side, right? And you see frequently an overuse and an over-referral of, of children to the carceral system that, again, is directed towards punishment rather than care um, and that kind of aspect. And And then these Juvenile systems like the, the delinquency side are, are now increasingly collaborating with the child welfare side, you know, which is supposed to be, you know, about it's got that word welfare in it. Right. It's supposed to be about welfare. But again, you're seeing these um, collaborative systems increasingly monetizing the vulnerable youth that they're solely supposed to be serving. Um, you know, you can look out like in um, California, right, about an example of the probation departments in California and their pursuit of Title IV-E foster care revenue in the millions, right? And um, they they can generate more for e revenue from children, the more poor children that are removed from their homes. The way it works, the way the equations work is they'll literally target what's called a, an increased penetration rate. And what the penetration rate is, the percentage of poor kids removed from their homes compared to non-poor kids. And as that percentage increases, the greater percentage of poor kids removed from their home, it becomes a multiplier in this revenue equation, right? And they can pull in more revenue for themselves. Um, and then they're also labeling children as foster care candidates through that system, but again, through the carceral probationary system. And the longer they keep processing the children, um, in that case, at constant risk of removal, the more revenue the systems can make. It becomes a huge factory in itself, you know, just one piece of the factory. And the commodity, they need kids in the system, right? You know, if they don't have the kids pulled in, they're not generating the revenue. Well, what role does racism play in all of this? The racial inequality is is just vast and, and stark and 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 historic. Um, when when we understand you know, the connections to um, past systems and the devastatingly um, harmful racial inequality of our country's past, um, and then seeing how um, many times um, we actually see similar practices still carried out today, sheriff sales, you know, as as an example, sheriff sales originated largely with sheriffs literally selling enslaved human beings hmm. right on the courthouse steps and the courts would issue 
a, a, a civil order of a debt owed, uh, maybe against uh, a, a individual who enslaved the people, right? Then that enslaved person is taken, you know, literally taken by the sheriff and sold off to generate revenue for that debt. But also the sheriffs are generating revenue from that process. They get a contingency fee um, for the sale. Those sheriff sales are still happening today as we speak across the country. Sheriffs generate commissions, right? Based upon how much they take from the poor, right? And then how much they sell off. And that's just one part of what the sh sheriffs, you know, much of their revenue is often generated um, through this this pursuit of harmful action against the poor. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Daniel Hatcher. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Injustice Incorporated, How America's Justice System Commodifies Children and the Poor. To do that, just go online to give2wbai.org. That's given the number 2wbai.org. Or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of London, low paid at large. Uh, also... If you become a BAI buddy for $15 or more and make a $100 contribution to WBAI, you can receive the Women's History Collection as our gift to you. It's a great 79-hour collection of restored audio recordings dating back to the earliest days of community radio broadcasting in 1949, culled from over six seasons of weekly radio programs from WBAI and our sister stations in the Pacifica Radio Network. To, to do that, just ask for the Women's History Collection when you call us at 212-209-2950 or... In this case, go online to women.wbai.org. That's W-O-M-E-N dot W-B-A-I.org. Uh, and become a BAI buddy with Low Paid at Large as your favorite show. Return now to Daniel L. Hatcher. The book we are talking about is Injustice Incorporated, How America's Justice System Commodifies Children and the Poor, published by the University of California Press. He is a professor of law at the University of Baltimore Civil Advocacy Clinic and uh, author of a number of other books. He's a former Maryland Legal Aid and Children's Defense Fund attorney and has been a scholar, advocate, and teacher on poverty and justice over the years. And um, you uh, talk about your own experience here. What role does your background play in the story? You write that during your first day in court in your first legal aid job, you were assigned to represent several foster children in one afternoon? What happened? Yes. So my in my first legal aid work, I, I was an attorney for children pulled into the, the highly dysfunctional Baltimore foster care system. And, and um, you know, at this point, you know, I'm still learning, you know, you know how to be a lawyer um, and um, um, still having um views of of our court system as, as you know as as 
idyllic, right? And um, you know, so my first day in in, in court in an afternoon, I represented several foster youth um, uh, pulled into the system. But you for, say that when you arrived, even before you went into the courtroom, you encountered a line of mostly black children shackled in chains. That's right. So you know, first I you know you we walk into the court and it was a beautiful historic court building. So you have a moment of feeling some grandeur, right, as as you're walking up the steps, but. Almost immediately as I walk in, I encountered a, a line of, of mostly black youth literally in chains, you know, you know, being shuffled down uh, apparently to their delinquency proceedings that were happening. And then I, you know, was descended into the basement, you know, of, of the courthouse where we were all directed to go. It was called the stip room, a stipulation room where, where all the lawyers and, and social workers were all crowdedly packed into this small you know sort of disheveled room um to try to work out agreements and it was you know stipulated agreements in there i'm sorry it's called stip room because they were stipulated agreements how do they work right well so the system the courts you know much more favored agreements where then the parties would just send um a short agreement you know typed out literally about the lives of of children often in, in a very short amount of time rather than have an actual court hearing, right? You know, the, the, you had to do what was called contest a proceeding request, a contested hearing, which was highly dis disfavored at that time. Um, so you had fast processing of the children's cases and it was just overwhelming, you know, like it was um, overwhelming emotionally and, and um, intellectually, like to try to handle this 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 caseload the the number uh, of children that I represented and I still see that their faces you know the children that I tried to represent and I carry that with me you know I was overwhelmed by it but also inspired to try to help so now and I've represented you know countless adults you know and and, and just about every poverty related issue that um, you can imagine I've had multiple clients die in the in the process of of trying to help them um, and. Um, I feel driven based upon their individual circumstances, um, and I feel honored to have the opportunity to try to help them. But I also feel driven when, when I when my research uncovers ways in which our systems are failing, right? You know, and especially our justice systems. Then I feel driven to uncover that, you know, based upon facts and legal analysis, so that hopefully we can work towards improvement. You say that you learned on that first day that some of the foster care agency attorneys engaged in a sort of hazing practice of purposeful delay uh, with with new lawyers for the children. Why did they do that? That's right. You know, when I was there early on, you know, and that frequently it would be um, um, a process of making it harder, you know, like sort of like, you know, less willing to. Um, maybe talk or give access to the um, computer terminal that you needed to try to um, um, write down information into a case file. Um, why it happened, I, I think, became a system of, of again, you know, almost using the children rather than serving them. You know, where where the agency attorneys, you know, I'm not saying all of them did this, but it was a practice, right, in which um, it became a process of almost, you know, almost like a competition or something, you know, like, and this, these are kids, you know, that we're talking about the most vulnerable among us and foster youth, 
Foster youth suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder at twice the level of veterans of war. Wow. Right. You know, and then and then if you met like in and for the youth who are pulled into the system, both the trauma of removal and then the ongoing trauma of poverty, it's a situation where, look, I mean, I don't at all diminish PTSD amongst veterans. Right. But but if there's some point um, an end to the deployment for many foster youth who are pulled into the system, it doesn't end. Right. And then and then it doesn't end when when the poverty, the trauma of poverty follows them into adulthood. So it's just the the trauma that they're going through is is unimaginable. Like and I'm like for those youth who who are able to um, get through, you know, the system and then do well you know do at least partially well look i've, I've encountered some who are just superheroes who are, who are now advocating for others but i'm i'm certain if i was in their shoes i wouldn't have made it out well weren't you made aware of how this dehumanized uh, on that first day when you received a message that demanded that you appear immediately uh to dispose of the cases because the baltimore orioles game was scheduled to start in a little while that's right. I mean, that was a, that was a very stark sort of, you know, very harmful symbolism, right? You know, in terms of where priorities um, can be placed in the systems that are intended to serve justice. Or the particular master, you know, sends a message saying we've got to get up there right away. Don't care if we're still working on things, right? Because there's a there's a baseball game to go watch, right? And again, these are these are <clears throat> these are children pulled into the foster care system. You know, I'm ready to stay there till, you know endless amount of time of, of necessary. And it was just so um, strikingly concerning, you know, t- to encounter that. And, you know, and that's, you know, these were oftentimes cases that were handled by masters or, or sometimes called judicial magistrates. And frequently across the country, we see these various, um, these systems that are being monetized, both in juvenile court and the family courts um, and the collections courts, um, that, that are that are engaged in these practices. Often they're not even real judges, right, who are engaged in the bulk of the practices. And they might be called, again, a master, um, a magistrate, some places commissioners, friends of the court, and some jurisdictions. In some states, that they don't even have to be a lawyer. Some states, they don't even need a college degree. In Alaska, they don't even need a high school diploma. Right. To begin potentially starting ruling on issues that impact vulnerable youth and adults. Were you generally given enough time to meet with your child clients? Uh, no. Back then, you know, because of the, the, the vast caseload, um, often, um, more often than not, you didn't have sufficient time to engage in the, in the level of um, of lawyering that should be available for the most vulnerable amongst us right and sometimes you know like you know i was in some cases it was lucky if, if the child was able to be brought in to have a, an interview maybe in my office or i might go to a school um <clears throat> go to their current foster care placement um and sometimes you know the, you know with the, the cases moving so quickly the children were literally just brought in and i had, was left with no other alternative but to interview them in court you know on the benches you know outside and just imagine the mm. the the fear and confusion of that, you know, for the, for the child who, who's pulled into that system. And who am I, you know, who's this guy in a suit who's sitting there saying, I'm my, I'm your lawyer and I'm just first met you. Right. You know, like, and how many cases were you expected to handle 
at the at the beginning of your career? Oh, I had hundreds with, with, within within the year, um, much more than I think um, could literally be ethically handled. You know, and it's it's a it's a similar dilemma for many public defenders uh, offices across the country in terms of of the caseload. So we need much more um, of a robust system of representation, right? If we're going to pull people into these systems, right, and and to pr- make sure they have access to legal assistance and make sure that that system of legal assistance is sufficient. So the words equal justice under the law at the Supreme Court is just ironic? Well, I believe in those words. I, 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 and I, I believe those words and an ideal that we have to strive for. Um, and I think those of us in the justice system and particularly have to strive for them. Um, and, you know, I write in the book that, you know, our, our, our courts, our institutions of justice, all of them, they're not, they're not made of materials, right? They're not, they're not made of marble or, or, or brick. Um, they're made of the people within. Right. And, and the words of justice, right, the words in our laws, the words in our Constitution, the words of equal justice only have meaning if we give them meaning. Right. So those of us, um, especially who are working in the justice systems, and I include myself in that as I'm an attorney and, and, and thus officer of the of the court, um, even if we are trying our best, even if we think we are ethically true individually, right, to our own efforts, to, to try to strive for equal and impartial justice. If we're working in a system that's compromised, right, that's structurally compromised by these revenue mechanisms, right, and other const- unconstitutional operations, and I argue that our own ethics are compromised, right? You know, we have to, as, as members of the legal profession, and especially as officers of the court, right, we have to strive for ethics, not just within us, but of the system. And that's a big reason why when, if you even look at, you know, you know our, our court cases that discuss impartiality, again, that crucial uh, due process impartiality. It's not just that you have a requirement of actual impartiality. You need it, it requires the appearance of impartiality. Right. We have to have systems that are built with structures that have an appearance of impartiality. And if you've got a system that is literally making money based upon the more children that are removed from their homes, right? Uh, that's not impartiality. That's the opposite of impartiality. So have you met uh, many lawyers who share your uh, your shock at the, the way the system works? Yes, uh, I, I have. Uh, you know, I will say, you know, even most people working in the systems aren't fully aware of, of the scope and depth um, of these revenue mechanisms. Um, and I hope that this book um, helps um, with that in terms of increasing awareness, both of the general public and, and you know, all of us, right? But also those who are um, already working within the justice systems. Uh, and I hope it can provide a roadmap towards um, both our own, you know, ethical pursuits and advocacy to improve these systems, right? And to potential litigation. Um, I think we're going to need more, you know, uh, unfortunately, litigation across the country to challenge these unconstitutional practices. And you've seen some you've seen some very good um, examples by some organizations um, such as Civil Rights Corps, ACLU, Southern Poverty Law Center and the like um, that are 
challenging unconstitutional practices, sometimes in the probationary systems or other fines and fees well, litigation. I, I hope this book provides a roadmap for, for increased uh, litigation to, to we right have, the wrongs if those in our justice systems aren't righting their own wrongs. We only have a few more minutes left, but I wanted to deal with your final chapter, which reiterates the ongoing, quote, racialized commodification of for-profit justice. Why has all of this been largely ignored? Is it simply because there's a lot of money to be made? That's certainly part of it, right? You know, when the, when the systems are trying to serve themselves and they're focused on that revenue and efficiency, um, they will be incentivized to ignore the harm um, and to rationalize the harm, to rationalize their own self-existence to a point of using those they exist to serve. Um, and also it's happening again, I think, because many of the systems are confidential. And even if they're not, understanding these processes, right, gaining access to the contracts and the budget documents and all the various iterations across the country in which these machinations, you know, are, are occurring, it's hard, you know, to decipher and then to decipher the math once you even have access. Um, but we have to keep striving for that. And, and I hope, you know, I, we also need more um, in addition to more litigation that we discussed, we need more people to have a voice, right? You know, like the, the importance of individuals to speak out. If you're individually impacted by one of these issues, or if you know somebody who is, or even if you're not and you care, right? Hopefully we all care. Because again, I think we're all interconnected, right? Have that voice, speak out to your local uh, elected official, your state elected official. Um, we saw a, a great example of that, you know, with, with, the issue I talked about a bit before um, with foster children's survivor and disability benefits where the foster care agencies are literally taking those from children. I, there was an individual in in D.C. in the District of Columbia who reached out to me uh, about the issue after some um, excellent journalism, right, which I had talked to the journalist based upon my research and 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 um, and and studies and. Um, but this indiv individual, one individual says, I want to do something about it. And he reaches out to his um, elected official in the District of Columbia who introduces a bill. And that bill has now been enacted as a city ordinance in D.C. So one person can have a huge hmm. impact. And, and I hope we all become engaged, stay engaged and keep striving for that ideal of, of, of equal justice. Because if we don't, you know, if we're not working towards the ideal, then the ideals tend to be replaced with their opposites, right? And, and we can't let that happen. And are you getting any sense of the impact of your book? Um, well, I hope. I've already received um, a lot of contact from various people who are interested, including in potentially thinking about litigation or, or working on potential policy changes. Um, I hope there's more. Um, and to build on my last book where – um, you know, with on that issue, um, myself and other. Your last book was the poverty industry, the exploitation but, of America's most vulnerable citizens. That's right. And I actually spoke on, on with, with you about that hmm. um, book when that when that book initially came out. So so we've seen some progress on that. And now now over 10 states, you know, based upon that research and the advocacy of, of myself and others. Um, now over 10 states are moving in the right direction to try to stop the harmful practices on that issue. We've got a lot more to do, but good change is possible. Well, I want to thank you so much for being on our show today. I've been speaking with Daniel L. Hatcher, his latest book, Injustice Incorporated, How America's Justice System Commodifies Children and the Poor, is published by University of California Press. 
Thank you so much for having me on the show. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. Uh, You can check us out on Twitter and Facebook. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI because we are going through a really rough time right now and uh, we need all the help we can get. So we're asking all of our listeners who have had them, who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling... 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's given the number to WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book that we've been discussing, Injustice Incorporated. How America's Justice System Commodifies Children and the Poor by Daniel L. Hatcher. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. If you become a BAI buddy for $15 or more or make a $100 contribution to WBAI, you can receive the Women's History Collection as our gift to you. It's a great 79-hour collection of restored audio recordings dating back to the earliest days of community radio broadcasting. That's 1949. And they're culled from over six seasons of weekly radio programs from WBAI and our sister stations in the Pacifica Radio Network. To get that, ask for the Women's History Collection when you call us at 212-209-2950. Or you can go online to a different address, women.wbai.org. That's W-O-M-E-N dot W-B-A-I dot org.